The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Jim Goodman. He is an organic dairy farmer and farm activist from Waniwak, Wisconsin. He explained to me that the Irish famine of the mid-1800s and the failed British farm policy and monoculture farming that caused it brought Jim's great-grandfather to immigrate to Wisconsin. Continuing failed farm policy in the United States has compelled Jim to advocate for a farmer-controlled, consumer-oriented food system. Jim and his wife, Rebecca, serve on the boards of many groups, such as the Midwest Environmental Advocates, the Organic Consumers Association, and Family Farm Defenders. They advocate for food sovereignty for all. Mr. Goodman frequently writes articles for such media outlets as the Progressive, Common Dream, Civil Eats, and the Capital Times. We served as Food and Society Policy Fellows together, and it was his invitation that brought me to Immokalee, Florida, to witness the exploitation of farm workers there. He recently wrote an article about the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and about local labeling policy that we're going to talk about this afternoon. Mr. Goodman, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Good to hear you again. Well, I think what we should do first is talk a little bit about how you got to where you are with regard to your farm activism. Well, I suppose it all started when we decided we would make the switch from conventional to organic farming. And uh, that was brought about because we could see how big agriculture, the big business corporations were controlling our prices and determining basically what consumers had available in the supermarket. And we were concerned about all the pesticides, herbicides, you know, the poisons we were using and the health of our animals and uh, our young children that we were raising at the time. So... Becoming organic was the right thing to do, but it seemed like there was something more that we needed to advocate for that type of farming. Uh, We needed to advocate for farmers being able to make decisions about how they farmed and about consumers being able to have a voice in what they ate, uh, whether it be local food, uh, food that supported their specific cultures. And I guess the trend to globalization was very concerning as well because We know that a lot of our food is produced overseas, and we don't know exactly how it's produced. Uh, We do know that farmers there are paid even more poorly than we are. So it was kind of a whole host of things, but we just couldn't become organic and hope to save our farm financially without doing something more, without uh, advocating for a more just food system. Now, if I remember correctly, you are selling your dairy products and grass-fed beef through local farmers markets is that correct the beef goes through farmers markets we do sell some cheese but the majority of our milk goes to a small organic cheese factory in wisconsin uh, cedar grove cheese which is uh, about 40 miles from us and then uh, in the last few years we started growing some organic grain crops uh, that we also sell you know wheat corn uh, soybeans barley and so 
Mm-hmm. What would you tell young farmers today about getting into organic farming specifically? Well, I guess I'd say that they're making a wise choice and wish them good luck because it's it's really difficult to get into any kind of farming with land prices, uh, equipment prices the way they are. So I think the best that they could do is if they can find some farmer that's uh, thinking about retiring in the near future and, and hopefully uh, work into that operation because to go and buy land and then go through a three-year transition of, of that land into organic production is it's going to be costly. Not impossible, but uh, I think any any young farmer that sees the wisdom in being organic probably is pretty tenacious and can probably make a go of it, but getting in with an established farmer might be a easier way to do it. Mm-hmm. Have you been able to support your family through farm income? Yes. we uh, Actually, our farm supports two families. Uh, we've got a young couple that's buying into the farm, and we don't really have any outside income to speak of other than a few you know, board per diems and things like that. But uh, right. we've been lucky. Yeah. Well, this is good news for young farmers. And I encourage people to get on the land and farm organically as you are to protect the environment and public health. So I commend you for that work, and I appreciate very much the fact that you've recognized how important farm policy is to surviving on these local farms. And even selling what you produce directly to consumers depends on many of these policies. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, as I mentioned in the introduction, was because of this terrific article that you wrote about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And before we started speaking on, on the air, we were talking about local labeling. So I feel very lucky here in Missouri to be able to go to my local farmer's market and buy food directly from the farmer. But you're saying that perhaps this Trans-Pacific Partnership will influence even labeling laws within the United States. So maybe you could or could not put certain labels on the food that you produce? That's true. And uh, we've had other trade agreements. Uh, The WTO, which was a big one, started many years ago. And just recently, uh, through the WTO, the cool country of origin labeling on meat was basically thrown out because it was deemed a trade burden on uh, Canada and Mexico trying to import meat to the U.S., so they said that uh, farmers in the U.S. could not label their meat as grown in the U.S., and we possibly can see the same things happening under the Trans-Pacific Partnership if it should be ratified, affecting local food labels, uh, GMO labels. Vermont and several New England states are trying to label their food GMOs, and if the Trans-Pacific Partnership were put in place, that could also be deemed a restriction of trade. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, I think a lot of these labels, local, whatever, if if some foreign corporation or U.S. corporation that has a foreign office decides that it's a restriction to international trade, they could sue and get those laws overturned. Mm-hmm. And from my understanding, the whole discussion around the TPP has been very secretive. So corporations have hundreds of people at the table negotiating these deals that will affect the quality of the food on our table, but the consumer really has blindfolds on. That's exactly true. The TPP was was written with uh, corporate consultants in the room. Even the U.S. Senate, uh, even U.S. Congress didn't know what was actually in the 
the, the trade agreement until it was released a few weeks ago. And for them to read through it now, uh, I don't know how many pages it is, but someone told me it would be a stack of paper about three to five feet high. Yeah. So it's very difficult for anyone to read through that and make sense of it and be able to you know, make an informed uh, decision when they go to vote. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, consumers, no one knew what was in there. Right. So you mentioned one resource called Flush the TPP, which is online, and it gives us some background about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and certainly the importance of writing letters or easier still is simply picking up the phone and calling our representatives and senators. Because this is a global trade deal, are you seeing global actions against this? Yeah, and I actually think that you know, a lot of actions in foreign countries are are stronger than what we've seen here. Uh, there were a few groups in this country organizing marches and protests and trying to organize against it, but uh, in in other countries, um, those people have passion, and, and there there's a lot of protesting going on. And there's a, a similar trade agreement we're negotiating now with Europe called the TTIP, TTIP, which I'm not going to try and remember the acronym, but uh, the European Union protests there are, are huge thousands and thousands of people just spontaneous protests and uh, we were in brussels in april for a protest and i think there's 30,000 people marching through brussels so in many ways opposition is much stronger outside the u.s than it is here because we didn't know anything about it but we don't have a very good history of concerning ourselves with our food because we've never never run out we've never been in the position where we didn't have food. So I guess we can take that as a good lesson that uh, other countries are uh, doing a better job of, of fighting and protesting than what we are. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really empowering for us to know that we are not alone. And I think it's easy for us to feel that way, to feel tired and disempowered and see the money in our political system. Of all of the political candidates in the running, I believe it's only Bernie Sanders that has spoken out against the TPP. He has always been against it from the very beginning. Hillary Clinton did uh, say that she doesn't support it now, but I kind of doubt if she would have made that switch had Bernie Sanders not come out against it, because when she was Secretary of State, she said it was the gold standard of trade agreements, and now she's saying she's not so sure anymore. Hmm. So... Credit towards due, Bernie Sanders really opened up the argument in the debates against the TPP. Mm-hmm. And, of course, being from Vermont, where GMO labeling was put out there, and I think this is going to be the year where we see some movement. I know that the food industry, of course, wants there to be voluntary labeling, which why would anybody put that on the label if it might impede some of their sales. I'm not sure if the consuming public really understands the negative consequences of voluntary labeling. Yeah, I mean, voluntary labeling is, I guess, uh, one way of describing it would be worth about as much as a warm bucket of spit. It would mean (laughs) absolutely nothing, probably would not be done to any great extent. And again, if TPP passes, even voluntary labels could be thrown out. So... We have to have mandatory labeling for GMOs if we want it to mean anything. And I think that uh, polling has shown that uh, you know, the vast majority of American consumers want the label there. 
Some mm-hmm. may not care if they eat it or not, but uh, it should be their choice to make. You know, I'm really glad you brought that up because I, too, am very perplexed when I see this movement. I see these surveys come out and say, yes, most consumers, over 90% of consumers surveyed consistently show that they want GMO labeling. However, whenever a state tries to enact labeling, what I see is this huge propaganda campaign coming in with false statements such as it's going to cost so much more to the consumer per year, hundreds of dollars, which I can't imagine how that would be since products are relabeled all the time. And then the other argument has been from farmers. They'll get a farmer to come on the TV and say, this isn't good for me. So I'm glad that you're a farmer so you can help pull back the curtain on some of these false statements. What would GMO labeling mean to you? Well, I think that Informed people know that if you really want GMO-free food, it's going to be organic food because we can't use GMOs as part of our certification. And that's one argument that those opposed to labeling use, that if you want GMO food, just buy organic. Well, it isn't always available to a lot of people. And a lot of people are, are really concerned for health reasons, for religious reasons, whatever, about GM food, and they should have the right to know. I think that the industry knows that if that label were put on, it would really decrease their sales. And I think a lot of food companies are already making the move to put non-GMO foods on the shelves because they know it sells. They know that's what people want. So from a farmer perspective, I don't think it would hurt farmers at all. I think it would actually help them. Yeah, some of them are going to have to stop planting GM crops, but a lot of them are stopping anyway because they don't work anymore and they're too expensive to plant. So... It's really a a nonsensical argument to say it's going to hurt farmers. Right. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Mr. Jim Goodman, an organic dairy farmer and farm activist based in Wisconsin. Mm. Well, Jim, I wonder if we can talk a little bit more about the TPP or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because I think that if you've ever been at a cocktail party and you start talking about trade deals, most people really wouldn't want to engage with us, right? It's a pretty heavy topic. But I want to make these trade deals seem more easy to understand through the eyes of both farmers and consumers. And there was one piece that you brought out in your excellent article, and I will refer our listeners to Family Farm Defenders. They produce a wonderful newsletter, and Mr. Goodman's articles are there for us to read and learn from. So one of the points of the TPP involves investor-state dispute settlement. Can you tell me what that means? Well, to to preface that a little bit, I think you need to know that the TPP has 30-some chapters, each each chapter addressing a different topic. Of those 30, 36, whatever chapters, only five actually deal with trade. So this really isn't a trade deal. It's, uh, I guess, a better way of describing it is a bill of corporate rights. And the investor state dispute settlement provision is kind of at the heart of that. Basically what it is, it's kind of like uh, the WTO overruling the, the country of origin food labeling. The investor state dispute settlement provision would allow corporations to sue any company, uh, any group that they felt was doing something that possibly impinged on their future profits. Now we've seen the country of origin labeling thing. Under uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement, we saw a corporation in Canada 
sued the state of California when they outlawed the uh, fuel additive, uh, was it EBBT or whatever that was found to be dangerous. A U.S. corporation sued Mexico when they denied them the right to put a toxic waste dump in Mexico. So this is just a sample of what the investor state dispute settlement can do. Any any foreign corporation or government that wants to sue when they feel it may affect their future profits. And the real, the really bad part of this is it's the, the case would be brought before an international tribunal of judges. And these judges basically are going to be corporate lawyers who last week may have been working for Monsanto or Dow or whoever, and this week they sit on this tribunal. So it's not brought before uh, circuit courts, district courts, Supreme Court, and generally these people that are going to be serving and making a decision on these cases are corporate lawyers that work for the companies that may be or have in the past put in similar lawsuits. Mm. So it's kind of a stacked deck in favor of anybody that wants to sue whoever for loss of future profits. This is amazing. So I'm thinking now through a public health lens, and so you've already described how this TPP might affect GMO labeling. I'm also thinking of soda taxes. I know that Mexico, believe it or not, has a very successful soda tax, and they've actually seen a decline of some of the childhood obesity that they think is a direct result of having the soda tax. And I can see if this is a bill of corporate rights that a soft drink corporation might decide, you know what, these these taxes are getting in the way of our profits. Maybe we want to remove those too, or even remove the possibility of having them. Am I thinking along the lines of logic here? No, you're exactly right. And cases could be brought on prescription drugs if whatever the situation might be that some drug company thought that by using generics or whatever, doctors prescribing generics, if that impinged on their profits because their name brands are obviously higher priced, they could sue. And another part of this that makes it even more insidious is, say, Monsanto doesn't like local GMO labeling initiatives. Well, in the normal course of events, if Monsanto wanted to sue somebody, they'd have to go through the U.S. court system. But under the TPP, they could have one of their foreign corporate branches sue and it wouldn't have to go through the U.S. court system. It would go through this international tribunal system. So Monsanto couldn't, in effect, sue someone for labeling GMOs without going through the U.S. courts. Wow. So Yeah, wow. Yeah. So now I want to get back to your farm. And you mentioned that you were planting, of course, organic seed. You're growing organic grains, which I might just throw out to our listeners that we don't have enough organic grain production here in the United States to meet consumer demand. And so what we're doing is we are importing more of our organic foods, which I see as a national security problem. But I'm wondering about you having access to non-GMO organic seeds. Do you think that these trade partnerships are really, I like the way you say these bills of, of corporate rights, would impede upon your ability to even find seed that you need? Yeah, it certainly could. I mean, at this point, we've not had trouble finding non-GM varieties. Sometimes we can't find organic varieties, and that's all right given, you know, there's no other option. But if, 
as we hope that more people start buying organic food and the demand continues to increase, you know, the seed companies aren't going to produce non-GM organic varieties unless the demand is there, but it takes a while to gear that up. And uh, so, yes, I certainly think that there could be a, a problem in the future. Yeah. You know, all of these points that I'm raising really fall under that umbrella of food sovereignty, which is what you and your wife, Rebecca, have been advocating for for years. And I use that term without really asking you to define it, because I think it's it's not something, again, that we speak about frequently. What does food sovereignty mean to you? Well, uh, there is a, a definition, and it's, it's food sovereignty is a term used by the International Farm Organization via Campesina, and it basically has seven principles, which I'm not going to list. But to me, what it means is that farmers have the right to determine what they will grow, and consumers have the right to determine what they will eat. And uh, the farmer is provided a fair living income. And uh, basically, I, I guess those are the you know the, the three strongest parts of it. And that's kind of the Family Farm Defenders mission statement: a farmer-controlled, consumer-oriented food system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important for us, and I think regardless of what words we use to describe this, having the freedom that I think all Americans truly treasure to be able to put in our bodies what we want and for farmers to be able to grow what they want is at the core of democracy. And I see that through these through the TPP and NAFTA and these other trade deals or corporate right deals, that we are slowly losing that freedom. And I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to say about these these trade packs that I may have omitted from our discussion. Well, I, I think people are hear the term food security a lot, which is, is always brought up in any kind of uh, trade agreements or food labeling issues and, and you know the, the government, the people that support GM universities say that we need to have people need to have food security, meaning that they have food, which doesn't really say much because a person in prison has food security, they get food. It may not be what they want, but they have food. So while food security and having something to eat is part of food sovereignty, it's not just food. It's it's food you feel good about, food that's healthy, food that respects the farmer uh, the consumer's needs, uh, whether they be you know, cultural preferences, religious preferences, how the food is raised. So don't confuse food sovereignty with food security because they're very different terms. And food sovereignty takes into account a whole host of things that people need to and have a right to think about when they go to the store to get food. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I go to a lot of grocery stores where Every time I'm traveling, I like to stop and see what is available or not to the consumers that that shop there. And I am witnessing a change in variety. I think it reflects the biodiversity loss that we see on our farms with industrial systems. And I can't help but think about the illness that comes from that kind of industrial system versus the kind of health and wealth that comes from the kind of food system you're advocating for. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good point. You know, if if everyone had access to healthy food, we might have a lot different picture, medically speaking, a lot less illness, uh, a lot less money spent on health care. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think we take that for granted. Even mental health and some of the ramifications we've seen from people who are not only physically unhealthy, but mentally unhealthy as well. And I don't think we think about the food that we eat at that all-important farmer connection. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you've seen the studies that they did at several schools in the United States where they took the soft drink machines out and stopped selling sugar snacks, and they started cooking real food in the cafeterias. And they said that basically kids acting out in class stopped mm. just by changing what they were allowed to eat. Mm-hmm. So that I think that says a lot. Yeah. And in getting back to our trade pack discussion, if those kinds of actions were deemed as being threatening to corporate profits, perhaps we might see legislation to stop those. Yeah, we could, because we know that the driving force behind corporations, whether they're manufacturing corporations or food companies, is profit, and they will do whatever they feel they must to make as much as they possibly can. And if it means taking away the rights of the average person, forcing them to buy what they sell, that's what they'll do. Yeah. Well, Jim, our time together is winding down. I want to just let our listeners know that you've been invited to speak in Germany and that to encourage all of us to know that we're not alone, there is a big movement in Europe. And if all this works out, what will you be speaking about in Europe about our situation? Well, one of the things that the European Union just did was was uh, eliminate the milk quotas, which um, basically said that you know a farm could only produce so much milk. And this was, to me, and, and Canada has milk quotas also, but to me that kind of keeps supply and demand in balance. So the farm price maintains a, a fairly constant level, and so does the price that people pay. I know during... It's been several years ago. In Canada, farmers were making much more for their milk than farmers in the U.S. were. But still, the price of milk in the stores in Canada was lower than what it was here. So they've eliminated these quotas now in in the EU. And a lot of farmers think, well, no, it's great. I can produce more milk and make more money. But it never seems to quite work that way. So that will be one of the things. I'm sure that our trade agreements with the European Union will come up, uh, organic farming. Of course, Europe has a very strong organic community, but we'll just uh, kind of see what they ask me. <laughs> yeah. Well, is there anything that you would like to ask our listeners to do? Give us a charge. Well, I would say in, in reference to the TPP, go to the Flush the TPP website and uh, find contact information, people in, uh, you know, the U.S. government, in addition to your legislators that you can contact, I think that making any kind of connection with local farmers and, and, and buying in farmers markets, food co-ops, whatever, is always a good thing to do. And uh, go to the Via Campesina website and find out what food sovereignty means. Because if once you know, once you understand a system that can work for farmers and consumers both, that's what you got to do. You have to understand the food system and, and how it uh, has kind of betrayed farmers and consumers both solely for the, the profits of uh, corporate agribusiness. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Jim, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me, and I especially want to thank you and your wife, Rebecca, for the advocacy work that you do and speaking out for true food sovereignty for everyone. In closing, I want to thank you for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And in closing, I want to remind everyone that Jim Goodman is an organic dairy farmer based in Wisconsin. He is a farm activist, and you can read his writing in Family Farm Defenders newsletters. He also writes for The Progressive, Common Dream, Civil Eats, and The Capital Times. Thank you so much, Jim, for all of your work. Well, thank you for all you do, too, Melinda. Mm-hmm.